Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we'll have myself, Mighty Pete, and we have the Ruth Ruckwitz. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening to you. Hello. <laughs> welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. So to give our listeners a bit of a background, so Ruth Ruckwitz is the author of two novels, Escaping the Whale and the prequel, The Whale Surfaces. Both novels feature a daughter of Holocaust survivors who struggle with the legacy of inherited trauma. Readers' interest in the background of the adult protagonist in the Escaping the Whale, which was first published, inspired the creation of the prequel, which describes the woman's childhood and adolescence. As a daughter of Holocaust survivors herself, Rockowitz has experienced, observed and researched inherited trauma. In the talks she has conducted via Zoom last year and the in-person talk she has begun recently, she has been heartened by the reaction of many types of readers of varied backgrounds who relate to her protagonist's struggles. Rakowitz has published fiction, non-fiction and poetry in various literary, literary journals and has been a staff writer and member of the educational board of the now defunct Women's Newspaper of Princeton where several of her featured articles garnered awards. She holds a BA, an MA in English, and she has taught English on both the college and high school levels. She currently conducts book talks for the Phoenix Holocaust Association in the Phoenix, Arizona area where she resides. In addition, she interviews children of the Holocaust survivors for her blog, where 14 interviews have been posted so far. The interviews reveal the diversity of experiences of both survivors and their offspring. Wow, Ruth, that's wonderful. Listen, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate you being here today. So thank, thank you. So tell us, first of all, I mean, well, who are you? What's, what's the best way of describing who you are? Who I am? Well, uh, let's see. I'm someone who finally realized my dreams and is living my best life at the age of 73. Um, Two years ago, well, let's put it this way. I was always a writer. That was always my passion. I always loved writing. I always wanted to write. Um, I feel that writing has great value, um, both informational, therapeutic, everything possible. I believe in writing. I love reading. I love literature. I love discussing literature. Um, so I did what anyone like that would do. I became an English teacher. Um, I taught at a specialized high school in New York for a while. Then when I moved to New Jersey, I taught at two community colleges, uh, business, English, and writing. And um, all the while I was still also teaching and writing at the same time, I did a lot of home instruction for the local high schools. Um, and it's interesting because one of the experiences from home instruction 
found its way into my first book. The kids who were put on home instruction there had all kinds of reasons to be on home instruction. They might have been suspended for selling drugs in the school. They might have had a broken leg. They might have had mono. But quite a few were girls who were pregnant. I never found out if the school wanted them to not be in the building or if they wanted to stay at home. I, I don't know. But um, it exposed me to the various types of people who experience that. It's not the stereotype of what people think, oh, what kind of girl will get pregnant, you know, in high school. It's, they're not, they don't all fit that stereotype. And in my first novel, Escaping the Whale, uh, I made the protagonist a guidance counselor at a large urban high school, which is where I, I was experienced teaching there. Um, and I made her a, someone who specializes in discussing issues with the pregnant students because all the other guidance counselors were men and were uncomfortable dealing with that. So that became her job. Um, now that I made up, I don't know, maybe they do now, but back then when I was there, uh, there was no such special you know, guidance counselor for that. So my experience with these girls led to my using that in the book. Um, now, when I was living in New Jersey and I had, you know, was home with a baby, I felt like I want, I, I had always published small things, you know, poetry and um, yeah, I worked for this newspaper in Princeton. I had like, you know, pretty much a monthly piece in there. Uh, I always submitted to literary journals, fiction, nonfiction, and sometimes it got published and sometimes it got rejected. That's the business. But I always wanted to do a novel. And every time I thought of something and started it, it I felt it wasn't going anywhere. So I was bored and I saw an ad for a writing class, adult education in the high school. I looked up the person teaching it. She was a writer of romance novels, which was not my thing, but I looked at one of them. I felt she, she did a good job of what that was. I'm going to try this. You know, what do I have to lose? So I go to this class and she started with um, a very, I guess, a hokey prompt, but it worked for me. She said to everyone, close your eyes. Imagine you're in a lake fishing and you throw in, you know, the fishing rod and you pull up a fish and you look at the fish and you say, I don't like this fish and you throw it back and you keep fishing until a fish comes to you and you say, yes, this is it. So I went along with this and my first fish <laughs> was great. It was the idea of a character. I never had a theme or an agenda that I started with. I had a character. I said, this is a character that I could write about, someone who is very troubled, who is leading a double life, who is pretending and, and showing the world that she's normal. She can work, she can you know, have some friends, she can have a boyfriend, blah, blah. But inside, she is suffering psychologically. She's imagining all kinds of horrible things. She thinks there are demons in her closet. Uh, she thinks <clears throat> you know, the sharks are going to come on land and kill everybody. I mean, all kinds of weird things. Um, now, people have asked me, is this me? <laughs> I have to say it is not. It's not a memoir, but there are parts of me in it. I have experienced some things. I, I exaggerated it more. I made it more extreme. I feel that when I have experienced things like that, I was able to handle it um, and get healthy. I made a character who couldn't, who tried to put a lid on it, like a pot of boiling water. She tried to put the lid on, but eventually that lid was going to explode. So I made this character a troubled person. And I knew right away she would be a child of Holocaust survivors. That There was no thought about that. I am a child of Holocaust survivors. And um, 
It's very interesting because in the late 70s, a nonfiction book came out called Children of the Holocaust by Helen Epstein. It was a groundbreaking book in this field. What she did was she found various children of survivors who are, you know, adults already, and went through their experiences of how they were raised and how they reacted to that. And it ranged from the extreme of parents who talked about their experiences constantly. They couldn't stop talking about it and crying all the time. And, you know, you can imagine what it would be like to grow up with that. The other extreme is parents who would never speak of it, who even denied that it ever happened. And I would say there's even more of an extreme that I've discovered, which I don't remember if it was in the book or not, of parents who denied that they were Jewish. They said, we're not Jewish, you know. Um, so there is that, you know, and in between, of course, there's everything else. So that book did a lot for people like me because it made them realize that we're not alone. Um, there are issues. It's true. It's not something to just sweep under the rug. It did affect not only our parents and grandparents and whoever else in the family survived, but it affected us. It affected the children. Um, I think, unfortunately, I've been sort of typecast as a Holocaust book, a Jewish book, and it's really not because it doesn't deal with that period. It deals with, it takes place in 1980, and I'll tell you in a little bit why I picked that year. Um, so it deals with a growing up. This character has to grow up, even though she's 28, she hasn't grown, really grown up. It deals with a woman drawing boundaries and saying, you know, I don't have to put up with this and I don't have to put up with that. I have certain, you know, I can stand up for myself. So it deals with that. And that was kind of coming out at that point. Uh, it deals with the immigrant experience for any group. I've been contacted by readers who uh, came from a Chinese background and an Indian background um, saying, you know, this was just like what we went through. You know, the details are different, but yes, we had an obligation to our parents to make their suffering worthwhile, to be successful in, in America, um, to be, you know, uh, professionals, but to marry someone from our group. <laughs> In other words, there was a limit. Go to college, you know, mingle with Americans and ever, but don't really lead the group. And their immigrant experience, they said they really could relate to this. And I've had people from, because it takes place in Brooklyn and a little bit in Long Island and a little bit in Mexico, but mainly the, it's in Brooklyn. So people from that area have, have appreciated the, you know, the references and the setting. Um, so it's really it appeals to people other than what it's been typecast as. And I'm trying to figure out how to break out of that, uh, you know, that niche. But anyway, uh, I made the book in 1980 because I vividly remember that year. That was the year of the Iranian hostage crisis. I, I became obsessed with it, as did many of my peers. We would rush home from work and turn on the TV, you know, what, what happened today? You know, that kind of thing. And it was so horrifying. And I think it's because it's the first time my generation got to see the United States as vulnerable. Um, it was a very frightening thing to see the brutality, the stories that came out of that. Uh, I remember one where uh, some Iranian guy killed his pregnant sister as an honor killing because she was pregnant with an American's child. You know, things like that were in the news. Um, they talked about things that the Savak had done and how that, you know, justified what they were doing. And all this morbid, horrible details stuck with me. And it occurred to me that they will stick with my character 
because of her inherited trauma that she's picked up from her parents and her parents suffering and all the stories she always heard that stayed with her. All these terrible things that happened, even if they happened to someone else, it stayed with her. And I think that's why she reacted to the hostage crisis so intensely because it was like another example of horrible things happening and people doing horrible things to each other. And it, it kind of escalates that the more she tries to keep a lid on her um, emotions, on her pain, on her demons, the more she can't keep a lid on it. And that's really what the book deals with. It deals with mental illness. I've been on a podcast that talked about PTSD because it's so similar. It's really a another type of PTSD. There's a big question of whether inherited trauma is a real thing. I feel like it doesn't matter what you call it. You know, there's some kind of trauma that you've picked up from growing up with traumatized people, even if they are trying to get past it. You know, they can't help it if they've been damaged. You have parents who lost another family before they even got married and had a new family. Uh, imagine what that feels like to find that out or to find it out in life and wonder why did they tell me before? Um, so the, in the book, I'll talk about escaping the whale. Um, in the book, I tried to do a lot of things once I got into the character. The whole thing was the character for me. How is this character going to get through her life, her experiences? Um, she's a guidance counselor. The school is going through all kinds of teenage stuff, you know, teen pregnancy, teen suicide, cutting, you know, um, self-mutilation, all that stuff that teenagers go through. She has to deal with that. And in a way, she's kind of reliving her own teenage years. She felt like she never finished that. Um, so that's part of the story as well. And then she, there are three crises that she experiences, which I won't reveal. But at the end of the third one, she just flips out. She says, I have to get away from here. And she decides on a lark to go to Mexico for a, um, you know, to a resort. And, you know, she has this boyfriend, of course, he has a fit. What? You know, you're going there, me, and you're just going like that. She just says, I have to do this. And she goes to this resort. And that allows me to bring in, you know, the, the people ask me about the title, Escaping the Whale. I tell them that the whale could be what you have to decide what the whale represents. I took the idea from the biblical story of Jonah and the whale. Uh, I was always fascinated by that story, and I'm very fascinated by myths of all, you know, cultures, and I include biblical stories in that category. Um, in the story, you know, Jonah tries to run away from what he's been ordered to do, and he takes a boat in the opposite direction from where God tells him to go, and he finds out on the way that he couldn't escape God, which to me means he couldn't escape from himself. And, you know, he's swallowed by the whale for three days, that whole business. And then he gets spit out <laughs> and then he goes on to do what he's supposed to do. But he's he's still depressed at the end of the story. It's not a satisfactory ending. Um, it's a very interesting story, actually. And I kind of base the idea on can you escape from yourself by going to a different place? She goes to Mexico. She's right on the beach on the seashore. Um can she get away from her problems? Well, of course not, they're, they're in her head. So whatever she does there makes her realize some things that she was not facing before. So that's the first book. 
in the course of discussing it, I did a lot of Zoom talks because that book came out April 2020 when the beginning of the lockdown. And I said, oh, great. Now I can't go to bookstores. I can't go to libraries. But it turns out with Zoom, it worked out very well because I was able to speak to organizations and book groups all over the country. And every time I spoke to a group, somebody would ask me, tell us more about, her name is Marsha, tell us more about Marsha's childhood, her background, how she was raised. I mean, there's only some allusions to it. So somebody finally said, why don't you write a prequel? I said, you know what? I'm in lockdown, I will. <laughs> so I'll show you. This is the original book, Escaping the Whale. If you can see the little whale there. And the subtitle of it is, the Holocaust is over, but, but is it ever over for the next generation? That's the thing. It's the next generation. We call the next generation two Gs, second generation. And this is the prequel, The Whale Surfaces. Okay. Again, we have a whale <laughs> and, and whatever that whale represents. Um, so my, my purpose really, once I had a purpose, was not only to show how terrible the Holocaust was and how it damaged people, but the experience of the children of survivors. This is a new field. This was never really discussed. If you look at books that are sort of put in a Holocaust world, you know, category, they're either memoirs, there are a lot of memoirs from survivors themselves and the children, like people my age, writing about their parents' experiences. You get that. You get nonfiction narratives about things that happened during the war. And all that is very important because it's documenting something that people are now, you know, we have deniers saying this never happened. So we need that documentation. But a fictional treatment of a 2G's life is, was rare when I came out with this book. In fact, part of the problem when I wanted to get it published was agents said, there's no category for this. What shelf would it go on in a bookstore? Nobody's going to want it. So I kind of gave up. I had also written another book in the middle, in the middle of work on this one. I had a brainstorm of another one, a completely different, a love story. I had an agent for that one. She tried to sell it and she couldn't. And she said, do you have something else? And I showed her the beginning of this one. She said, again, no category. It's not, no one cares. Fine. I said, forget it. I give up, you know, <laughs> I'm done. And two things changed my mind that made me realize that there is, there are people who are interested in this, even though it's not a major category. I'd say now organizations tailored to two Gs are first coming, you know, becoming strong. And I found on Facebook, for example, which I always said I would never go on Facebook. I would hate it. And because all I saw were my friends posting pictures of meals they ate in restaurants. I don't want to see what you ate for dinner. So I said I was never going to do it. But when the book came out, the publisher said, you have to have social media presence. So Facebook actually has helped me because there are a number now of 2G Facebook groups. And it, it connected me to other people, other writers, um, organizations that I was able to speak to about this, my, you know, my experience as a 2G. And um, it, it really widened my horizons and found me quite a bit of an audience. But anyway, the two things that inspired me to believe that there was an audience for my writing was number one, when I moved to Arizona and I found out there was a Phoenix Holocaust Association and I started going there and I met other people like me, two Gs. Uh, some had written memoirs. No one else I met had written fiction. The fiction is my thing. I can write nonfiction too, but I just love fiction. 
And I saw these are people who probably would want to read my book because they relate. I mean, it's not a lot of people, but maybe there are more out there. The other thing that happened was several years ago, uh, some cousins of mine found out about a program called the Jewish Welcome Service of Vienna. Vienna is where my parents are from. I never had been and I never wanted to be for some just knowing what my parents had gone through there. I felt, why should I go? But we found out that some cousins had gone. They said it was a good program. It was worthwhile. So I ended up, we applied, and I went with my sister and two cousins, four ladies. It was great. And we went on this trip. It was very healing, so to speak, to see the buildings, the apartment buildings where both my parents grew up, to see the place where their synagogue used to be, which is now nothing. I think it's a parking garage now. Um, The Nazis had bombed. 25 synagogues in Vienna. They left one standing. And I can't remember the reason. I think something important was next door or whatever. And what they did something interesting in Vienna, though, they commissioned an installation artist to create this piece. Um, and it's standing at every spot where there used to be a synagogue that had been destroyed. And what the piece is, it's like a metal pole. And if, if you look at it from far away, it looks like a kind of abstract design on top. But if you get closer and stand under it and look up, it's a Jewish star. So that was very moving. And we were hosted by the president of Vienna at the Hofburg Palace. And in fact, uh, the four of us, maybe because we came as four in a group of four, we were interviewed for a uh, Viennese newspaper <laughs> about our experiences. It was really a whirlwind, but it was very, very interesting. And on this trip, we met people from who also two Gs like us. And what, two people on the trip had actually been born in Vienna. They were older, but they had been children at the time, you know, young children. So it was just fascinating to meet all these people who had all different stories of themselves and their parents. And I felt, you know, here are other people who might be interested in my book. So when I came back from that, those two experiences pushed me to try to find out um, if there was a publisher out there who would take a chance on this. And I was told about one that seemed to specialize in Holocaust memoirs. They said, well, maybe she'll be interested in the fiction. And she liked it. She said, I'll take it. I can't promise it's going to sell great because the memoirs are her thing. But she she published it. I was thrilled. And the reaction I've gotten has been wonderful. It's been overwhelming. Obviously, I'm not on, you know, the numbers of how much sells is not going to be what, you know, other books are. But it's it's good enough. And I'm very, very pleased with the the reaction Um, in the prequel. I start when she's 11 and her experiences in school and with her parents and things she doesn't know, things that she knows she's not supposed to talk about, Um, you know, like like this will upset them. Don't say that, you know, that and a lot of people grew up with that. And then um, we, you know, it goes through her going through high school, through college and finally graduating college, getting a job and taking her own apartment, which her parents are horrified at that idea. But um, so that she she goes till 22. So it's 11 to 22. And the other book is at age 28. So you got six years there to uh, imagine, you know, but um, people have, have responded that they felt it could be combined into one book, that it was definitely her, definitely connected. That was my big challenge to create a younger person that could be that same person. It was a very interesting journey. 
uh, and I'm just very pleased with the reaction. That's all, you know, I could say. Mm-hmm. And now, actually, um, I am doing interviews. I don't know how I, oh, yeah, I suddenly thought of this because I had a website set up. And I love my website. It's very cool. <laughs> Go look at my website. But a blog was set up. And at the beginning, I was writing articles about things that somehow related to issues in the book. Inherited trauma, um, you know, uh, fear, pain, the things that we're afraid of. Uh, uh, an article had come out about a shock attack back in New Jersey where I used to live back in the, I think it was the 20s or 30s. Thought that would be interesting and relate to the book. Then there was a story about a fisherman in Massachusetts who believes he was swallowed by a whale and then spit out again. So I put that article in. I said, you know, you never know, right? What could really have happened? And um, but then I had the idea of because people were contacting me and telling me about their experiences, their 2G experiences and their parents' Holocaust experiences. I said, what if I started interviewing people and posting the interviews? Would people be interested in that? Well, I thought to myself, if I could get 12 interviews, I'll post one a month for a year and that'll be it. I started in October. Uh, so in those, these few months, I've already posted 14 interviews. It's like they're coming out of the woodwork. And the reaction has been great. And a lot of non-Jewish people are saying, wow, you know, I'm learning so much. This is incredible. Uh, Jewish people as well. And there's a lot of sympathy and understanding. And some people, the, the experiences are so different. There are people whose parents, they felt their parents were horrible to them. And there are people who felt their parents did like a perfect job. And there are people who talk about the difficulties of being a 2G, but the reaction has been very good. So I'm just going to keep doing that until I'm done, until no more are coming in. So that's where I am now, busy with these interviews. Oh, wonderful. Can you can you tell me what what's your definition of inherited trauma, by the way? Okay, that's a very good question because there is some new research now, and if I really think, I may think of the name of it, that believes that there there are actually changes to the DNA in some people that is biologically passed on, and that they are actually literally inheriting the trauma in their DNA. That's a separate study now that's going on. I would say inherited trauma is trauma that you've picked up from the environment you live in, uh, from fear and suspicion and sometimes a kind of nastiness toward the world. Uh, You know, I think it's inherited in the sense that you've picked it up and incorporated and absorbed it. I believe I've absorbed a lot of the fears and, you know, uh, suspicions of people, you know, of, of survivors that I know in my family. Uh, and I'm, I mean, a friend of mine told me that she remembers sitting in her high chair and having her mother crying and telling her about being on the train. I mean, she's lived with this her whole life and she's paranoid about her passport being up to date. She's like, I have to know that I can get out anytime. So, you know, that's a form of inherited trauma, too, even though it may not be genetic. So I think it's a type of trauma that you pick up from your environment. That would be my definition. As as you say, it is interesting. You know, if there is options for the DNA side of it or it is behavioral, psychological, you know, emotional, connectional, whatever, you know, it's... um, 
And it, it probably it could be a multitude of money or multiple of those, right? Absolutely. One of the people I interviewed said that she's convinced, and this is a woman who was a scientist herself, she's convinced that it exists because her daughter one day woke up screaming during the night, screaming hysterically, and she ran in and tried to calm her down. The daughter started telling her of an experience she'd had that exactly mirrored her grandmother's experience in Europe. And this woman said she she did not know this at all. She did not know the grandmother's experience. She felt it. She felt it herself in her, her mind and her body. It was completely what the grandmother had gone through. So she said, no one can tell me that there's no such thing as inherited trauma. This came out in, in one interview. Um, it's amazing what comes out. Absolutely amazing. When we were in Vienna, one of the women we met who... I remember we had a long talk with her at one point. She said she had been grown, she grew up being told that they were Catholic. She knew her parents had been in a concentration camp, but they said, because we're Catholic. I said, did you have family? She goes, yes, we visited cousins. And I said, what were they? She goes, they were Jewish. I said, did that ever occur to you that there's something, you know, wrong? She goes, it never occurred to her. Like this, these are Jewish and we're not Jewish. On her mother's deathbed, she told her that they were Jewish, but they were so terrified of anyone knowing because of what they went through in Europe. They didn't trust, and I've heard this before, they didn't trust that the United States was really safe. They didn't know what if people now were Jewish. And I've had other people I interviewed tell me that their parents, you know, they knew they were Jewish, but the parents told them, don't let other people know that you're Jewish. Don't make a big thing out of it, you know, because you'll just be a target. Friends will leave you, you know. Um, depending on what they went through. And some people were the opposite. They came out of the experience in Europe, you know, more strongly attached to their Judaism um, and only trying to associate with other people like themselves. You get that a lot, that survivors, Holocaust survivors try to stay with others that because they feel comfortable with them. They don't have to talk about it. They all know what they went through. In fact, there's an interesting film. It's called The Four Seasons Lodge. I moderated a discussion on it for the Phoenix Holocaust Association about two years ago. And what it does deals with is there's a bungalow colony in the Catskills in New York, where there are a lot of bungalow colonies. It's the country <laughs> and um, a group, 25 uh, couples of Holocaust survivors were going to other bungalow colonies where they didn't feel that comfortable. They formed this bungalow colony together for them. And it was fascinating. We got the director to come on the show with us. And um, it was just fascinating to hear their experiences and why they felt comfortable there and how these people could compartmentalize. You could have someone discussing some horrible thing they had to go through in a concentration camp. And then, oh, it's time for my bridge class. Bye. You know, they can just like block it off. They can go to like, part. they had events at the casino and there'd be parties and dancing in a band and they're all having a grand old time. And then they say, yeah, but when I go home, those images are still in my mind when I lie down of what I saw and what I experienced. Uh, you also get people saying that um, one woman said, you know, I never would have married my husband in any other situation. But after the war in the DP camps, People came together that they hardly knew each other and right away got married and had children. It was like this urge to live, to show that I'm alive. I can have sex. I can have a baby. I can have a family. You can't stop me. 
So, you know, you Nazis, you didn't succeed. You know, here we are and we're procreating. And she said, you know, she hardly knew her husband and they weren't a great match, but, and that was very common actually. So a lot of really, really fascinating things are coming out. I mean, I thought I knew just about everything that could happen, um, but I'm learning so much and I'm so thrilled that people are finding these interviews interesting. I mean, what, what, what have you learned specifically yourself that you maybe didn't expect or is there a common theme? Um, well, there really no, are no common themes. Everybody's experience is different. Um, I found that the people like in that movie, the ones who had kind of a sense of humor and a zest for life, you know, um, were the ones who did the best afterwards. There are a lot, and, and the ones who, everyone talked about it, that's the thing. They didn't really have, people there who wouldn't discuss what they went through. If you ask them, they wouldn't just go around talking about it, but if you ask them, they would answer a question. Now, so many people have told me that their parents wouldn't talk about it. They had to press them uh, or they would, you know, get them to do a videotape maybe for, you know, Steven Spielberg's thing or something else. And they would listen in. That's the only way they knew anything. And the question comes up, why would they not tell their children about what they went through? There are a lot of reasons one could be they don't want to relive the pain. The other could be they don't want to pass that burden of pain onto the children. Like, like it might be contagious, like you'll become damaged and scared and everything just like we are. The thing is that kids are going to pick that up anyway, but they feel like by not telling about it. The other thing is there's some guilt, survivor's guilt. How did, you know, why did I survive and other people, my family didn't? Was I just lucky? You know, what happened? What, and that people might be suspicious of that. Like, what did you do to survive? You know, did you pay off someone? Did you sleep with some Gestapo agent? You know, and people did. Sometimes it came up. Um, so there's some shame. There's some guilt there. Uh, mainly people felt that the parents were trying to protect them. It was a protective thing. Uh, but I heard over the, the one common theme is that survivors are scared of German shepherds which is really interesting because the, the Gestapo used German shepherds against dogs. A lot of survivors hate dogs altogether. They're scared of them, but mostly it's German shepherds. And one person said his mother loved dogs, but if she saw a German shepherd coming across the street, it was just too painful or sirens, you know. Um, one person's mother became schizophrenic. Two people have told me the mother became schizophrenic um, after the war. There's just so much damage and not wanting to deal with it or talk about it has been horrible for these people. And I tried to put that in the book a little bit too, that, you know, the importance of dealing with any form of mental illness of trying to get help. Um, but people at that time, it wasn't the thing, you know, you didn't admit that kind of weakness um, of needing help. Uh, and I think I made my character, Marcia, reach a point where it was just so bad that she couldn't function anymore. That's really the, the line with PTSD, where if it prevents you from functioning, that's, you know, I, I made her have a couple of little breakdowns until she finally just realized that she, she can't live like this. She'd rather be dead than live like that. So I think when you reach that point, you know, you have to, to do something about it. So I've tried. Um, I also tried to use, you know, water, the, the whale thing. Water is a very important part of mythology. 
we all know you need water for life. And even the ancients who had no scientific knowledge yet, they knew that you need water for life. And water stands for transportation, okay? How did the people go from one place to another? Uh, it was a source of life, getting fish um, and for, you know, drinking water, but it could also be a destructive force, you know, floods and, you know, drownings. So you've got these two parts of life, you know, the good and the bad in water. Um, and tr water journeys become very uh, emblematic. For example, the Odyssey, you know, everyone knows that he took Odysseus 10 years to get home. Um, and, and he went through all these experiences on the water. And by the time he gets home, we are supposed to believe he's now more mature, more settled, ready for his family, ready to be, you know, a king and a family man. So the water journey represented, you know, his growth, his maturation. Many, many mythologies deal with water journeys. In fact, there's a Babylonian myth I found that was almost exactly the same as the Jonah story. The difference was at the end, uh, the character is um, granted eternal life for what he went through. Uh, actually, in Arab cultures, Jonah, there's a shrine to Jonah in one of the Arab countries that he's considered a hero. Um, and Many other, if you think about it in our religious baptism and, and you know, Catholicism, uh, the mikvah, it's a cleansing ritual in Judaism. So their water, the Hindus have a water shrine. So their water is very important. And I try to, you know, she goes to Mexico, she's on the water. In her, it inspires some fearful imaginings. Just about everything begins to inspire fearful imaginings in her. And that's when she begins to see that she can't control this boiling water in her head. You know, the lid is going to pop off any minute. Um, so I just think that's that's important to recognize that, you know, the value of water in our, in our storytelling. And I try to sort of, you know, use that in the first book. I have to go to the beach often. Um, you know, she's she's scared. She sometimes has scary thoughts, but she's also mesmerized by watching the waves. That's why people like to sit at the beach. And at one point I have her observe a little girl who draws like a circle around herself in the sand and doesn't want to let her parents come in the circle. This is my circle. And I thought that could represent to her. She's trying to grow up as a woman and say, this is what I need. You know, if you're in if you're encroaching on that, you're no good for me. You're toxic for me. And I think that is a very big problem for people, men and women, but I think more for women for some reason. There's this training to be um, amenable to what the guy wants, um, you know, to be passive. And I think in, in 1980, that was just starting to be challenged with women going into careers. And I think that that became like a main thing for her, a symbol of being independent and, and following her own mind. Um, so I tried to use, you know, things like that um, in the story. And another thing that I really am very interested in is the mental health issue. And I, I think it's part of mental illness is I think they call it obsessive thinking when you obsess over something. And it's, if it's something horrible and you can't get it out of your mind, you feel like you're a prisoner of your own mind. And I felt that was the connection to the Iran hostage crisis. They were prisoners in one way, but in a sense, Marsha's a prisoner too. She's a prisoner of her own obsessions and her own fears and her own thoughts. So, you know, just as she needs to break away, you know, everyone in America was hoping that the 
hostages would be freed. That was just a big thing that united everybody back then. Oh. It's interesting as you talk. I mean, I'm just thinking of uh, Viktor Frankl's book, you know, The Man's Search for Meaning, you know, and, and the talk about that, it's, you know, it was, it was a mental, as much, I mean, obviously the, the physical experience was, was horrific, but also the mental aspect was even more so because if you lost the mental, then you lost the entire battle almost, you know, and just as you speak, it's almost like that mental side, that trauma, you know, it seems yeah. carried through. Does it, does that make sense? Yes. Yes. And I think part of my interest in placing her in a high school was to show maybe the beginnings of those trauma in teenagers. Um, there was certain trauma, teenage pregnancy, why do kids get pregnant? They can use birth control, you know, like anyone else. You got that. Um, you've got cutting, which is a very under misunderstood thing where they, um, you know, self-mutilate, cut them, and they can kill themselves if they hit an artery. Um, and, you know, you've got that. Teachers usually know if someone's always wearing long sleeves or, you know, like a, a band or something here that it, it gets suspicious. Um, the explanation for it is that it provides relief. And I know, you, you know, it's hard to imagine it, but it provides relief from the psychic pain because now you're inflicting physical pain on yourself. Teen suicide is another horrible, horrible thing that sometimes comes up. And I put one in the book. So I think, you know, there's so much denial, like in the book that you mentioned, denial is the key to, I don't know, I wouldn't say the problem, but the key to understanding what the problem is. You know, why are you denying it? Um, what do you think will happen if this comes out? That kind of thing. And I'll tell you the truth. When I first wrote the book, I mean, this is years in the making. When I first wrote the book, I think if it had been published, I would not have been able to handle that. I think it's good that I waited till I'm older and more mature <laughs> because um, I think I was just as people ask me, is this you? I think I would have been afraid that people would think it's me and think, well, you're really weird. She's really weird. She's really sick. Um, how could you think of these things? You know, that kind of thing. And I think that that would have upset me very much. Now, anyone could say anything and it doesn't upset me. I don't care. This is the advantage of getting older. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that you don't need to be in denial. It's like, okay, if that's what you think, fine. No. It's having that, I think, as you say, that that strength of conviction, you know, and that ability to say, well, part of it may be and part of it may not be, but yeah, no, right. Be, right. But it's not, yeah. yeah. And another thing besides the water, which I felt was um, I'm very interested in, was um, animals. The story of Joan and the whale, you've got an animal. I mean, we assume it's a whale. It really says a big fish, but okay. Um, and there's a, you know, the whole idea of the, you know, traveling, you know, through water and darkness and, you know, in order to grow up, you've got the Gilgamesh and the, you know, Mesopotamian myth, similar, very similar type of story. 
Um, even fairy tales, think of the princess and the frog. The frog is the slimy, disgusting thing that comes out of the water and then is transformed into a handsome prince. So water is like a medium. But animals, I think, I see a sort of a connection between the big fish of the Jonah and the whale story and many other myths that deal with a creature, a dangerous creature, a dragon. Um, ancient myths are full of dragons and, you know, weird animals. Uh, and in, I see the Jonah and the whale story as, again, showing the good and bad of water and the good and bad of a big animal, because it seems to be that he'll die because of this whale, but actually the whale saves him. It doesn't eat him. <laughs> it just kind of keeps him in a holding pattern. <laughs> Uh, so it sort of saves him and gives him a chance to, you know, uh, reevaluate his choices and then spits him out. So you've got animals that uh, like the I think the ancients more instinctually understood our connection to animals than we do. We have pets. OK, but they lived with animals that were dangerous, but could also provide food and you know transportation so so there's like this combination in fact there are ancient societies where when they kill an animal in a hunt they eat the heart of the animal and i see that as saying give me your bravery you know i want to absorb your strength and your bravery and thank you for you know giving it to me so i find that fascinating i think Animals play a big part in fairy tales and in myths and in, you know, all kinds of stories. And I think that that's always in my mind now. My character has some scary um, thoughts, but she has scary thoughts about everything, including animals. And you can have scary thoughts about animals and still love animals at the same time. Because we sense there's a connection. There's something that appeals to us about the animal kingdom. And that's that's what I think is is interesting. And I think we can learn a lot from, from myths because of that. Yeah. It's, it's, I can't help but sort of thinking of the, the similarities, right? So, I mean, you know, it's, it's obviously the, you know, it's a story in itself, but also it's symbolic in so many ways as well. Right. You know, it's, it's, is it, is it, is it easier to do that than actually potentially talk about the, the harsh reality of, the things that went mm -hmm. on or, or where do you sit on mm -hmm. You mean, is it easier to turn it into like a, a myth than a... Yeah, I mean, a myth or a story or something that's, you know, it's yeah. more palatable, right? And then before you know it, it's like, okay, I can see the similarities here, right? Yeah. And I think, I think it's wrong for teachers who teach, you know, these myths to kind of attach a message to them because I don't think there's necessarily one message. I think the Jonah, and this I put actually in the prequel, I think the Jonah and the whale story is often taught as he was wrong to disobey God, he was bad. And he had to in the end learn that he had to do what God wanted him to do. I don't think that is necessarily the message. And I think um, with any of these myths or biblical stories, there's a lot omitted that you have to fill in you know, you're not told everything. And I think in this case, we're not told any background about Jonah. We don't know if he has a family. We don't know anything. Um, he seems to be a really um, unhappy and depressed person. Uh, in fact, 
there's a scene, it's a very short book. There's a scene where um, the storm starts tossing the ship and all the um, sailors start praying to their various gods, pagan soldiers, to please save them that this storm is going to, you know, kill them. And what does Jonah do? He goes down to the hold of the ship and falls asleep. Is that what a depressed person would do in distress, fall asleep? And the captain comes down and says to him, you know, what are you doing? You know, everybody's praying. You know, who are you anyway? What God do you pray to? And he takes responsibility. He says, you know, I'm a Hebrew and, you know, my God is doing this because I'm running away from him. So just throw me overboard and that'll, you know, stop the storm. And the pagan sailors are better people than he is. They don't make a big thing about that, but I think they should. Um, and they say, no, it's, we can't, that we can't take a life. And they keep throwing more cargo overboard. And he says, no. But see, Jonah doesn't jump off himself. He wants, this is like this passive aggressive thing. He wants them to throw him overboard. Finally, they say, okay, you know, we have to. They throw him overboard. The storm ceases. And the pagan sailors all pray to God, the Hebrew God, and ask forgiveness for taking a life. I think that's very interesting. Um, part of the story because it's assumed that part of the reason Jonah didn't want to go where he was sent is because that was the capital of the Assyrian empire who were out to destroy the Israelites. So he says, why should I give them a chance? He never says this. This is all background and commentary. Why should we give them a chance to repent if they're intent on killing us? And um, ultimately, supposedly God wants to give them that chance to repent. And I, it was just very interesting, I think, that they, the message that's given to children is you're supposed to listen, you know, to what God says you do, not run away. And I think there's so much more in there that even young children would understand. I don't think that it's fair to put like one theme, one message on any story. That's my, that was another issue. I mean, I, I was a teacher and, and I was a student before I was a teacher and I was never really happy as a student. And I think I put that in the book too, that the way things are taught is not always valuable. You know, there's like an agenda that, you know, it's not like you're brainwashing them, but you have to make things clear. So, okay, we got to give the kids this, this happened this time. This is the reason for that. This, and, you know, you can make a nice list out of it. Um, and I just think the brighter kids are ready for more uh, nuance and more understanding of historical. In the book, I make her a um, social studies teacher before she was a guidance counselor. And then she's helping a niece with a project for social studies where the teacher only wants certain things said, and she doesn't believe those things are correct. And here she's trying to tell this girl, yeah, you're right, but you know, you don't want to fail the course. Um, and you know, the way certain things are presented, I think, oh yeah, the girl had to do a, a thing about Alexander the Great. And the teacher was making Alexander the Great into like the greatest thing. Everyone would cheer for him. And she said, what's so great about him? He went around killing and conquering, you know, what's so great about that? So she's, you know, but the teacher didn't like when she said that. It was like she was being, um, you know, hostile. So I think there are a lot of issues in education that need to be addressed, you know, the way things, okay, now all of a sudden we don't say Columbus was, you know, wonderful to the Native Americans. You know, now there's another side to it. So I think, I think education is something, I'm hoping that people who read it, and I, I have heard from teachers, that people who read it will at least 
question how some things are presented, you know, to, to children. And I think it's hard. Some things like history, how can you teach history without it being subjective? I think it's almost impossible. So that's tough. You know, there are a lot of tough questions in education. And, uh, you know, what are you going to do? You have to do you have to do your job. But I think I think the brighter kids suffer from that approach. Oh, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, uh, teaching styles, I suppose, you know, do you do you be brutally honest with people? Do you withhold? Do you sort of be selective? You know, it's difficult, right? You know, and, and we sort of try and shelter the kids, but then are you sheltering the child or are you sheltering yourself? Right? It's always a it's always an interesting one. I mean, where do you sit on it? I mean, I mean well, just remembering when I was teaching in high school, and I think it probably was more difficult for teachers in other departments, they're supposed to get through a certain amount of material within a certain period of time. So you try to simplify things. And, you know, the books simplify and they leave out a lot. I just remember suddenly realizing that I was looking through my, you know, when my daughter was in high school, there was no mention of the Spanish Inquisition. Now, I think that's something important. Maybe whoever wrote that textbook decided out of all the things in history is not that important. Um, I remember once oh, when I was working for this newspaper in Princeton, I interviewed a woman who had gone to school in various um, European countries. And she said she learned about one war as a student in, I think, Switzerland. And then the same war she learned as a student in Austria, and it was like a whole different story, you know, because they each had their own version of the war. And she was in a position to real, you know, to recognize that. We all have our national myths. That's the thing. You know, George Washington chopped down a cherry tree. Well, what does that show about, um, about the culture that they're trying to promulgate, that we stand for honesty and we stand for, you know. So the myths are reflective of what the society is aiming to be, I would think, what it is and what it's aiming to be. I think that's the value of all these stories is what does it show us about those people? Mm. How do you feel about your heritage? Okay, I'm proud. I'm proud of it. Um, I never was resentful of my heritage. Um, I resent The only thing I resented, I felt, I think I was able to pick out um, irrational fears. You know, uh, if someone's scared because somebody's late getting home from work, you know, I would think to myself, well, you know, maybe the subway got stuck. You know, I, I would work it out. Uh, and I kind of separated myself. I was able to separate myself from a lot of things that other people are afraid of. On the other hand, I developed a lot of fears. I remember when I lived in an apartment building, I would not go down to the basement to do the laundry. I was terrified of being in that dark basement by myself. People in the building went down there, both when I, you know, when I was a child living at home and when I was later, you know, an adult. Um, I wouldn't go down there. I was terrified that I would be attacked and stabbed and whatever in the basement. So I dragged my laundry around the corner to an above ground, you know, laundromat until I had a place where I had my own machine. I was like, oh, I have a machine in the house. Wonderful. But um, I think, yeah, I, I am proud of my heritage. I'm proud of what my family was able to do to get out of Europe. Uh, a lot of it was luck. They just, you know, it's luck. You're lucky somebody, they were helped. Another thing I'm very proud of in my parents is they never talked um, in a bad way about other people. 
because they were both helped in their journey to safety by non-Jews who were brave enough to help them. Now they're separately, they met in, in the United States. Um, both of them have been helped by, by non-Jewish people at their own risk. And I've, my parents have never ever said anything bad about any non-Jewish group. And I, I respect that and I appreciate that because I know people who were raised with, um, you know, a lot of suspicion about people who are not like you. And I just, I felt they were always, you know, interested enough in other people that, you know, it may, they may not have been best friends with them, but they were always nice and interested. And so I'm very proud of that. And my parents were very, attached. they're not religious, but they're very attached to their heritage of Judaism. And my interest in Judaism is a little different. It's less as a religion and more as a literature and a culture and a history. Uh, so my interest is, you know, maybe slightly different, but I feel connected to it. I definitely do. And that visit to Vienna made me feel connected more to them because um, you're just standing on a street and go, wow, this was the street where, you know, the Nazis chased them down the street. And this was the street where my grandfather had to clean the street. You know, it's just hard to be standing there at this modern, you know, place where everybody seems so friendly. Um, it makes you a little wary, I would say, because my mother always said all their neighbors were friendly and nice until the day that Hitler took over Austria. And then they didn't say hello anymore. They didn't say good morning anymore. They came out in their, you know, the Hitler youth uniforms. Everything was Heil Hitler. Um, and that's when they, you know, they realized that things are different, but these are people who were their friends before that. Um, so that made me a little wary. I'm going, oh, everybody here is so nice, but, you know, um, but there was a very, very, the, the um, event at the Hofburg Palace with the president of Austria, he made a very, very moving speech. I know I was crying and many other people were too, where he said, you know, we know that we have a lot to make up for and to be sorry for. And um, it was interesting because the Israeli ambassador to Austria was there and her parents were Holocaust survivors from Austria. And she's now the Israeli ambassador to Austria. And she felt, said she felt comfortable there. It was a very, very interesting experience. It, it showed the nuances of the situation. Um, you can't approach it as a black and white because it just isn't. Um, and I say, yeah, I feel connected to my heritage, but maybe not in the exact way that, you know, other people in my family would feel connected to it. For you, do you believe that the... The answers, if you like, for the future lie in the past. I mean, do we need to, you know, do we need a, a fresh perspective or is it vital that we take the lessons that have been learned so far and bring them forward? It would be nice if that could happen, but I'm very pessimistic. I mean, look what's going on in the world now. I, you know, it's there's always something horrible going on. There's always somebody suffering. And some of it we don't even know about. Um, you know, now with the stuff in Ukraine, what's interesting, yes, there's great sympathy for the Ukrainians. Um, I was involved right before COVID locked everything down. The Phoenix Holocaust Association was doing a, okay, <laughs> was doing a um, project on, um, I don't know if you've heard of Father Patrick Dubois, He's a French Catholic priest. He made it his mission for reasons of his own 
to locate all the mass graves throughout Eastern Europe, which were mostly in Ukraine, where Jews were just rounded up from their villages, stripped. They were often made to dig the grave and then they were shot and just mass buried in the grave. And they, they made Ukrainians do, you know, do the dirty work with them. Now, in some cases, they were very willing to do it. In some cases, they were forced. So there's both, you know. And um, I think they already uncovered about 2,500 of these mass graves. It was about a million and a half people were killed that way. And um, he goes around, he has a group, it's based in Paris, and it's been approved by the Vatican. And he goes around Europe. I'm sure he's not going to Ukraine now, but um, he has a, a, he takes translators with him, and he finds villages. He's always looking for villages who were alive at that time. Okay, who were there? Obviously, they're old now. They had to have been children then, but they remember. And he's trying to get to these people while they're still alive, and. I have on tape that I was going to show as part of this presentation that was all, you know, everything got canceled. Um, interviews he did with some of these Ukrainian villagers. And it's really enlightening. Some of these old people, they cried, they sobbed, they say there was nothing we could do. These people were our friends. We went to school with them, with these Jewish people. We couldn't do anything to help them. Um, and some people did. There are people who, you know, hid someone or warned them to run away. Some people did some things. Um, and there were people saying, no one asked us about this in you know, 70, 80 years. Nobody has asked us. Um, and maybe they're willing to talk to him because he's a priest. They know he's not coming back to blame them or to you know regain property or anything like that. But they just said, I wanted to talk about this all these years and nobody asked. Remember, after the war, you know, people just want to rebuild their, their lives and their villages. They weren't, you know, but there are stories of people climbing out of the pits that weren't dead and trying to, you know, escape. One woman started screaming at him. She was in a field and she said, somebody was still alive after they were done. She goes, I took a shovel and I bashed their head in so that they would die too. Now, then she ran away. So you don't know if she did it because she hated them and felt that was her mission or because um, she thought she was saving them, you know, that they were going to, they're better off being dead now that, they, you know, with everyone else. I mean, they were just horrible. And these people saw things that they stayed with them all their lives and they felt helpless and they felt like they, in a way they were victims too, I feel. And it's just very frightening. Um, and then you can read the, the testimony from the Nuremberg trials. They had one, um, they were called the Einsatz group in the groups that did the, um, the these mass murders. And some of what they did was so cruel and humiliating. It's like, what happens to people that they believe they could do this to other people, that they believe that's justified? You know, what happens to people? Um, you know, if there's a pretty girl in the town, well, she keeps getting raped by the Gestapo soldiers and everybody adults say, don't say anything about it. You know, like don't draw attention to it. Things like that. But I mean, just horrible, worse things than that. that it, ugh, I can't even think about it. But um, it's just amazing that these graves, when he first started looking, he knew he, he was following, his grandfather had been a prisoner of war during the, um, the war. 
And his grandfather always said to him, it wasn't great for us, but it was worse for other people. And he would never go into any more detail. So when he went to the area where this had happened in the Ukraine, he realized that they probably, the prison he was in was probably overlooking one of these mass graves and maybe he had to take part in digging it, who knows. He realized that was one of the things. And he kept telling the mayor of this town, I want to talk to people who know about this. At the time they said, no, nobody knows anything about Jews. We don't talk about Jews here, you know. But then the next mayor came up and said, I'm going to arrange something. And they took him to this. This is how his career started doing this. They took him to this town and a bunch of very poor farmers met him. I mean, they had you know newspaper stuffed in their boots. They were wearing rags and they didn't say a word. They just led him into the forest and stood by the remains of this grave. And one by one, they started they started crying and leaving. And that's how he began. You know, that was the first one. He saw that, that these people have lived with what they remember. But there were so many other one one person. It's just unbelievable. One woman that was interviewed said that she thought that it, the way the Jews were being marched was like a procession. Um, and she felt maybe it was because since Jews have killed Jesus, that this was uh you know, like they're just punishment and it had to happen, that it was inevitable that they were being marched that way. Um, so, you know, I can't even blame this woman. I think she's just an uneducated person who grew up with this, you know, I think the Nazis used the Catholicism of the area to make people believe that so they would, you know, go along with it. It's just so horrible that it makes you think, is there any hope in the world? Like, yeah, you'd like to believe people are trying to keep the Holocaust stories alive so that it won't happen again. I don't believe anything can prevent anything like that from happening. And I wish I could believe that. Um, I think if anything, the Holocaust stories not only educates people, but it unites the Jewish community to say, you know, we're going to have to protect ourselves all the time. Nobody else is going to stand up for us. Um, but other than that, saying does the past help prevent bad things in the future? I wish I could believe that, but I, I'm too pessimistic from what I see in the stories I hear. Where do you sit in regards to sort of, I suppose, acceptance and forgiveness? It's interesting. One of the people I interviewed speaks to high school students. And he, he's a 2G. And one of the questions he's, real, he's always asked by the students is, would you ever forgive the Germans? And his answer is, it's not my place to forgive. Um, the people who are in Germany now are not the ones who did anything. So I don't blame them. I think Germany was better than most countries in dealing with it after the war because it, became, it did become a democracy and they were willing to teach about it. And in their situation, remember, it, it had just happened. So these kids can go home and say to their parents and grandparents, where were you? What were you doing? That was the danger of, of bring, you know, teaching it. But other countries, they, they were much more, you know, Poland, Hungary, um, I don't know, Romania. I mean, I don't think even France, my mother was in France for three years during the war. She was stateless uh, in France until she got to the United, when she got out of Austria until she got to the United States. So, you know, there were people who were kind and wonderful and helped them. And there were people who, you know, 
didn't care. Everyone was out for themselves. That's life. You know, everyone was, wants to survive. Um, so I don't know. I just think that um, there's no way to know what, what's going to happen in the future. And that's frightening. I'm always wondering, you know, if you can inherit trauma, you know, can you, you know, can you sort of almost reverse inherit forgiveness? Yeah. You know, um, and, uh, forgiveness, yes. Um, I think watching those tapes from Father Dubois allowed me not to forgive people who did the horrible things, but the people who didn't do anything to stop it because they could have been killed too. I mean, nobody, even my mother says all the time, we, nobody can criticize because you don't know what you would do in that situation. And I feel like if she could say that, I can too. You don't know, you can't say they should have done this, they should have done that. They weren't armed. You know, here's this armed army coming in. These people are poor, they're uneducated. They're just, you know, simple farmers trying to scratch out a living. Um, I don't blame those people. I do blame the ones who really, uh, I, I, could, I couldn't forgive the ones who were um, engaged in cruelty and twisted it around. As I said, there, uh, one of the Nuremberg interviews was with one of the heads of the Amzitzgruppen, and he talked about how um, it was psychologically devastating to his soldiers to do what they had to do to kill these Jews. They were psychological. They suffered more than the Jews did because of the psychological toll on them for having to do this. And the judge even said, are you saying that the German soldiers who killed these people and threw them in a pit were suffering more than the people that were being killed? And he says, oh, absolutely. I feel for them. They were really, you know, psychologically traumatized. But there was he never questioned why we have to do this, you know. <laughs> Um, so I think some people I could, cannot forgive. Most of those are dead already anyway, so they don't need my forgiveness. But the ones who came later, I think, I don't know, but yeah, that's a good question, but in reversing inherited trauma, I think you can raise children to be understanding. And I think, as I say, my parents did a very good job of that because they always tell me how, you know, uh, a Christian neighbor hid my father when they were going around looking for Jewish men. She hid him. They came to her door, the Gestapo, and she yelled at them. And she said, I am an Aryan. How dare you think I would hide, you know? And they stayed in touch with her even after they came to the United States. Um, my mother's family, she and her family were put up in a, um, like a rooming house at the border when they tried to get across the border. The first night they were turned back. And this guy at his own risk gave them a room to stay in just for that night and let them use his telephone. Cause he had, my grandfather had a cousin in Belgium who had to come to the border with a, uh, like a one day pass, whatever it was called. Um, and then from Belgium, they got into Luxembourg and a, a neighbor of a friend of a cousin or whatever took them in on her farm because my, my uncle was very sick. He had scarlet fever, I think they took him out of the hospital. And she said, they're never going to come to my farm. The Nazis aren't going to look here. You stay here until he recovers. Non-Jewish people, they put their lives on the line. They helped them. Then the, a neighbor of theirs said, I'll take your daughter to her uncle in Paris. I, I'll use, she, they couldn't use my mother's passport because I had a big J on it, but they had, um, I'll use my daughter's passport. 
So she put her life on the line. She took my mother at age 14 on the train to Paris to her uncle and then came back. So my parents always, it's not so much forgiveness, but looking at the individual, that there is good in some people. You cannot um, demean an entire you know, class of people, an entire group of people. There's always going to be some good, some bad in people. Why so much of a nation became so evil. My theory is that it's power corrupts, just like Macbeth's story of Macbeth. Once the people, like my mother said, the people who became, you know, uh, powerful in the Gestapo were very often people who had like just menial jobs before. They weren't professionals. So all of a sudden they're big shots. All of a sudden they have power over other people. And that got to their heads. And now they could be mean. They could kick someone in the street. They could see someone who was the doc- their doctor on their knees in the street. And, and you were a nothing before, I don't know, a janitor or whatever. And all of a sudden you can beat this person and be mean and horrible. It's the power. And how do you correct that? How, you know, that's human nature to just get carried away with the power. And I think that's that's the biggest problem that we, maybe we face today. So I think if you can train children to look at individuals and care about individuals, maybe, maybe that's the way forward. I don't know. I wish I could be more optimistic. <laughs> what is there a power or belief or a, a strength or a value that we all have that, you know, could be the way forward for us? Huh. Well, you know, on my website, I have some quotes from Carl Jung that I feel relate to my book. And one of them is that, you know, the water is the mother of the unconscious, you know, everything, things that relate. But one of the things that Jung talks about, um, which I'm fascinated by, is dreams. And he had found that people were dreaming ancient myths that they had never been exposed to. So there is this uh, collective unconscious, he calls it. So I think that ties in with what you're saying, that there is something in the human mind and human nature and the human psyche that connects us, that makes us all be able to understand one another. We just have to be able to access that. And I think when the people act in a cruel manner towards another person, it's like, look, we had slavery in the United States. How could a person treat a slave as an object. You have to believe that person is not a human being like you, that this person does not have feelings like you, that this person is either not a person or inferior. So the way Hitler made them feel about Jews was the way, you know, white slave owners felt about, you know, black people. They're not people. They're not like us. You know, it's okay to be cruel and horrible. So there's something Maybe the key is understanding that all human beings are human beings, that we have the same feelings and thoughts and whatever. It's not that one is less of a person than the other. That, If that could be passed on, maybe that could reverse whatever traumas exist. But that is a tough thing. That's a tough sell, I think. It depends on the society you're raised in. If that society is pushing a certain point of view, you're going to absorb that. It's all perspective, isn't it, really? You know, we, we choose to see what we want to see. We choose to view what we want to view, you know, before the event, during the event, after the event. It's all, 
it's perception. It's, it's you know, yeah. what's convenient, what suits your agenda, or what assuages your guilt. Um, I don't know. I, I just don't know. It's. Did you? Find- I'd like to think that what I'm doing though is not all depressing. <laughs> that well, something is coming out of it that will help people. Well, that's what I want to sort of ask you. I mean, for you. I mean, how, how do you sort of cope or, or how do you self-preserve, you know, especially because if you're immersed in it, you know, in the, in the history of it, but also then speaking to, you know, as you say, 2G survivors and, and you know, mm-hmm. next generations as well. But there's an, there's an immersion over and over again there, right? I mean, mm-hmm. how, how, do you, how do you keep your head above water? How do you make sure that you're, you're not sort of... Well, I couldn't have done it when I was younger because I think I was so sensitive and just like my character, that everything would have kept me up at night. Everything becomes a nightmare. Um, I think somehow as I got older, I was able to put it in perspective and say, okay, this happened. This is not my life though. Um, but there are times, you know, people are always recommending different books to me about the Holocaust or whatever. And I'll read a bunch of books and I say, that's it. Now I need some light funny thing. I can't read another one for a while. So, and I don't understand the people who do the research. I mean, there's some incredible Holocaust researchers out there. I don't know how they handle it, just like Father Dubois. I'm hoping he travels with a psychologist, as someone suggested, um, because I don't know how you could, you know, just disassociate yourself from everything that you're hearing. Um, and even I think that was part of the thing with the hostage crisis when they were interviewing people who talked about the cruelties that Savak um you know, uh, carried out on people. It was disgusting. It was horrible. Like what? I you just make you say, what's wrong with anyone who would do that to somebody else? Don't you think? How would I feel? If someone did that to me? You know, what's wrong that people don't think that? So um, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I think yeah, you have to have enough maturity to be able to. Take it. If you can only take it a little bit at a time, then that's what you do. If you can really immerse yourself in it, you don't want to turn into like an angry, you know, uh, depressed person. It's up. It's your nature. You know, I think I changed enough that I could handle reading about it now. But sometimes if I know a book is really graphic, I won't read it or see the movie. I just feel like, why should I expose myself to that? It'll just make me crazy. Awesome. I'm crazy enough without it. <laughs> I mean, there, there is that point that, you know, you become deluded by, you know, human nature as, as a mass and you go, well, but there is good people. There's, there's people who have done amazing things, you know, both yeah. privately and publicly and, and, you know, outside of their necessity as such, you know. So I suppose it's trying to, it's perspective. Again, it's back to perspective, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some beautiful and amazing stories and there's some absolutely horrific stories, I suppose. Yeah. So, it's a bit of both. Um, I'm curious, have you ever met a whale? Have I ever met a whale? I've gone on whale watching trips. <laughs> it's funny we went. <laughs> yeah, oh, I think they're fascinating. I mean, of course, I've gone to, you know, SeaWorld and all that stuff. I'm terrified of sharks. i absolutely terrified of sharks. But we went, um, my husband and my daughter and I went to San Diego for a few days over the uh, summer and I booked us on a whale and dolphin watching trip. And I have a, a visor made up with the name of my book, Escaping the Whale. 
I stuck this visor in my head and my daughter said, now we're not going to see any whales because that's going to scare them away. <laughs> well, ironically, we didn't see any whales, but we saw a gazillion dolphins. I think they're wonderful. They're just great. They're beautiful. I watch videos of animals constantly because I'm so fascinated by them. There was one, oh my God, actually, I don't know if it was a dolphin or a whale that showed a dog riding on the back of this sea animal. And the, the, the animal brought him to like wherever, it was like a plank of wood. And the dog got up on that. And then they like talked to each other, you know, and then they kind of like kissed even. Like, oh, I just love that stuff. That's how I relax is watching videos of animals. Um, it's, it's fascinating. I think the animal kingdom is absolutely fascinating. And there's, there's stuff that we could learn from them. No, absolutely. I think it's, I mean, I suppose the animal kingdom is, is brutal, but also very, yes. very respectful at the same time. Right. You know, it's, yeah. it's you know, almost as you were saying earlier, I mean, it's, it's, you know, a hunter can be a phenomenal um, person to look after animals too. Right. But it, it's, yes. it, there's, there's both sides. I mean, it's almost mm -hmm. the, the hunter and the goddess and, you know, it's that, yeah. it's that yin and yang, I suppose, of it. It's, but it's when we don't have either respect for an animal or whatever, you know, as you say, if, if uh, it's just it's fascinating. They have incredible capabilities, some animals, really incredible. There's so many stories of, you know, an elephant, for example, being loyal to somebody, knowing they're sick, coming to check on them. And dogs, of course, they do that all the time. Um, but then again, there's a lot that's scary. If I were walking in a forest and heard wolves, I would be terrified. But I'll be interested to learn about wolves and read about them, you know. But um, I think being scared is part of the fascination. If they have the power to scare us, you're interested in, in, in that, that is, power. Is there any particular animal that you feel particularly drawn to? Yes, I love giraffes. Everyone who knows me knows I have a house full of giraffe uh, figurines. Um, it's interesting because the way it started I was in a writer's group at a bookstore when I lived in New Jersey, and we used to take turns coming up with a prompt, and then we would all write, and then we would share it. And I came up with the prompt. I said, write about an animal that you feel, you know, attracted to, but not a dog or cat, not like something that would be a pet. And for some reason, it popped into my head a giraffe. And the reason, well, I'm tall, so I thought a giraffe is a good example of being graceful in, in your tallness. <laughs> um, and I just thought that they've had the cutest little faces and they just seem so like gentle with each other. But I think it was just the grace of their height attracted me. And I have since learned about a new animal that is related to the giraffe, even though it doesn't look like it. It's called the okapi, O-K-A-P-I. It's from Africa. Um, and luckily, the San Diego Zoo had a copy, so I got to see them. They look like a cross between a horse and a zebra and maybe even a mouse because they have like those big ears. They have like stripes on their legs, but the body is solid. Supposedly, there's something about the internal structure was similar to giraffes. Like it has a long neck, even though it doesn't look like it for, for its size. And it has the beginning of the little horns. For whatever the reason was, they have scientists have determined that it's related to giraffe, even though you would never guess it. And it just seems so interesting. It looks like a couple of different animals got pasted together. <laughs> 
So I have a new love in Okapi, but no one knows about that animal. You can't find things of Okapis in stores. Because but I think headlines, yeah. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I have to write something about no copy. But um, I just think that, you know, when I watch the mother bay and the baby together, I just could stand there all day and watch that. Yeah. Is there more books in you? I mean, is, is there- Oh, I hope so. I'll tell you the truth. I'm so busy now with trying to promote these, set up, you know, uh, things to be on and um, doing the interviews, which... You know, I, I often have to edit them. Sometimes they're first person, sometimes they're third person, but I write up an introduction to all of them and I edit them. So that's a lot of work. So it's keeping me from doing anything else. But I have started two other novels that are totally unrelated to anything about being a 2G in the Holocaust. They're completely different. And I would like to finish at least one of them because I don't want to be typecast, you know, as just one type of writer. Even now, I feel like, um, you know, it's like the responses I get is more from people from the 2G groups. And I'm trying to reach a wider audience because I feel it's a woman's story. It's a growing up story. It's, you know, it's so many other things. It's a mental health story. Um, so I'm trying to show that it's other things besides, you know, uh, 2Gs dealing with their, you know, family's Holocaust experiences. It's part of it, but it's not everything. And the one, one of the ones I'm working on has some humor in it. So I'm hoping that that comes across. <laughs> and I hope to. I'm trying to finish something else because I don't want to be stuck, you know, just doing this one thing for the rest of my, whatever's left of my life. <laughs> well, what, what is, you know, you being creative, what does that look like? Are you sort of typewriter in a dark room or less, you know, more casual? Or- I'm very casual about everything. I'm the most unorganized person. If you saw this desk, you would believe me. <laughs> um, but I'm trying to be more organized. I, I do write on a computer, but I also write longhand whenever something strikes me. And I'll try to write in different rooms and different places. Um, before COVID, I could go somewhere and sit and write. Now I'm so scared about going anywhere. Um, but I just feel like I'm always writing, even when I'm not writing. It's in my head. I'll come up with ideas. If I can't write it while I'm driving or something, when I come home, I'll, I'll write it. Um, I don't always compose on the computer. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I compose longhand, transcribe it, and then in the process, you're editing it already. Um, I do a lot of editing. I've edited for other people, and I edit myself and my books, the one that this one and the one that didn't sell. I had them edited and workshopped and book doctored and everything. So I feel like they were ready. They're ready to go. Uh, they just didn't have the uh, any backing. But I, I want to continue with the ones that I'm working on now because that's what I live for is to is to write, is to create stories. And I feel like that's that's like the most wonderful thing for me to be able to do. It's an amazing legacy. And, and you know, uh, you know, having a book out there that can be having an impact, you know, yeah. with, with or without you, you know, it's, 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 it's an entity in itself, right? Absolutely. In fact, I remember I had an English teacher in high school who once said, and I think I even remember what the class was reading. I think we were reading Martin Eden by Jack London. And he said, he believes that every writer has one book in them that they have to get out. And he felt that this was Jack London's, you know, and I feel like this is, even though the other book was completed first, that one that didn't sell, this one was started first. I feel like that's the one I had to get out. 
it, I almost exorcised my, uh, my pain by getting it out. And I think it was therapeutic for me, writing it, and even more so having it recognized by other people who like it and told me that, you know, uh, all I need is someone to tell me this meant so much to me. I loved it. You're right. Great. That's all I need. I don't need to know that, you know, a million people, you know, are going to buy this book because they're not. <laughs> but um, I feel like uh, this was the one. This was the one I had to get out. Now I'm enjoying writing these others, but I see that I'm going to get stuck along the way where it just it's going to need something. And I'll have to just take a break and think of what that something is that will propel it into you know, another uh, dimension, because you can go on and on and write a book about your characters forever, but you have to make something happen that, you know, forces the plot to take a new turn. So I know I'm going to reach that point at some point, but I look forward to it because I can't wait. Sometimes I'm jealous of friends of mine who are artists. Um, you know, they make jewelry or they make paintings. because I feel like you get the satisfaction of that creativity right away. You're looking at it, whereas writing, someone has to be willing to sit there and read it or put the audio thing in their ear and listen to it. Um, I just think it would be great to be able to uh, create something that you vis visually see. And friends of mine who are artists say, oh, but you're doing it in a different way. But I just think there's a, I feel a little bit of like envy that I think they can have more immediate satisfaction, even if nobody buys that painting or that necklace that they made. Um, I think it's easier to sell stuff like that than sell a book, obviously. Mm. But um, it's just a different kind of creativity with photography. Oh, God, there's a beautiful photography out there. I love looking at that. I love seeing some of the amazing things you could do with, with photography. You might have to start taking up like cave drawings or something so you can tell you. <laughs> Tell your story in pictures, you know, it's like. Well, I think that's a therapeutic thing. I once went on a weekend at the Jersey Shore um, at a and b where it was an artist who was kind of encouraging people to, I don't remember, to, you know, draw certain things. And I do have a sketch pad and I'm yet to use it because I think that's very therapeutic too. Even if you're not artistically talented, I think it, it helps a lot to be able to try to draw something. So I'm just interested in any kind of, um, creative endeavor as a therapy tool because I think those are amazing. I mean, whenever whenever you're writing, I mean, do you tend to are you tapping into your imagination? Is it just whatever comes to your mind? Is it more structured? What what way does it flow for you? It's not structured. It's whatever comes into my head. Usually, a setting or people that's going to inspire it, like some kind of personality, because it's the pe people that I'm interested in, the character. That I'm interested in how do different characters handle their lives? How do different characters deal with the challenges of living? Um, and what are the, the challenges they face? So people would give me an idea. And sometimes a setting will give me an idea. Um, or a smell even. I'm very tuned into different smells. A smell will make me remember something or, um, you know, conjure up an association and um, I think the, the sensory stuff uh, is important. That speaks to me. But yes, I, anything. I'm full of ideas. I, I hope I live to 500 and I can write them all down. But um, I get very excited when there's an idea. Um, 
and I'm still sending out short pieces. I just had a short story published in an online publication. So I'm very excited about that. And um, what that, that story is called Delilah. And again, I went back to the Bible, which this is the only time I've done this. It sounds like that's all I do. Um, I took the story of Samson and looked at Delilah and I told it from an imaginary Delilah's point of view, because we don't know anything about her. And I made her a sympathetic figure. And I told a story as if she was, you know, forced to do this and they held something over her head or whatever. I made up that story. And I'm getting some very good responses to that. People have said it, it reminded them of the Red Tent, um, the book that uh, Dina, the Bible, because it is, it's taking someone who's overlooked as, you know, not given their point of view and telling their point of view. And I'm very interested in that in taking a character from a myth or a story or whatever and saying, okay, this person in the story is made into the bad guy, all right? Like Delilah's this evil seductress, okay? Maybe that wasn't the way it was, you know? Maybe she had no choice or whatever. So I wanna tell the story from their point of view. I know there's a book out that I think tells the Odysseus story from Penelope's point of view. I think it's by Margaret Atwood, I'm not sure. Um, I have not read that yet. But um, I just think that's a fascinating exercise is to put yourself in the point of view of the person that you are supposed to dislike and changing this, you know, the situation around. Because there's always something we don't know, right? Absolutely. And every day's a school day, as they say. <laughs> oh, I guess so. What what does downtime look for you? You know, what's what was involved? I mean, are you up a mountain? Well, down by the sea, yes. what are you doing? Well, I love being outside. I live in Arizona. So except for the summer when the heat is brutal, it's usually beautiful. So I walk. I try to walk every day if I can, if not, if I'm not too achy <laughs> to my back and my knees and all that when you get older. But I try to walk. And often I walk over to the dog park and watch the doggies. Um, and I sit out in my backyard. That's my downtime. And I do take time every day to just get off my feet, just, you know, relax a little bit. I need those breaks very much. Um, you know, I have friends and I have family who lives nearby. My mother is 97 and a half and she's still mentally fine. Um, you know, she has other ish physical issues, but not terrible. And my sister lives nearby and, um, you know, it's, I, I need to see some friends. I'm in a book club. You know, we meet once a month. Um, you know, I used to go to exercise classes, but now with the COVID, I'm afraid. So I just do the walking. But yeah, I, downtime is very important to me. And I read all the time. Sometimes I'm reading two or three books at a time. So if I'm not in the mood for the serious one, I'll read the more, you know, lighthearted one. Um, and that's also part of downtime for me. Yeah. Well, it's it's always I mean there's always seems to be an immersion there anyway and uh, you know, a lot of reading a lot of digesting and and sort of a lot of imaginative work you know so whenever we read right we're we're very active mentally very active right yeah you well everyone reads differently right but um, yeah I try to read critically but then I try to read something that I don't have to think that much about also that it's just like entertainment you know. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's just, you know, I mean, it's beautiful where we live. So I enjoy, you know, the outdoors. As I said, the summer, you don't want to be outdoors here. <laughs> so we try to get away. We used to travel in the summers, but now, I don't know, with COVID now, you don't know anymore what you could do. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. So tell me, if, if you were to try and describe your fire in your belly in one or two words, Ruth, what would they be? If I try to describe what? Your fire in your belly in one or oh, two words. the fire in my belly. To express myself through the written word, that's my fire in my belly, to write. Um, sometimes what you're writing, after you write it, you say, oh, this is crap, but it, it still had a purpose. It got that out of you. And maybe now you can move on to something that's not crap. <laughs> but I think the fire in my belly has always been to write, to create through through words, to write. I always admired books and reading. That was just my love. Um, and I always felt I want to be a writer. I want to be one of these people who has books. And um, that's my fire is just to always keep writing. I always have a pen and a pad with me, no matter where I go. <laughs> and I just feel like that's so important. If I couldn't do that, I would have nothing. I would be nothing and I would have nothing. And I feel like, you know, the books shouldn't have made me somebody, but I feel in a way they have. I feel like I can, I'm proud of myself now for having done that, even though I've done other things I could be proud of, but it doesn't mean the same thing to me as, as the writing does. Mm. That's my fire in my belly. Love <laughs> I love that term. That's a great term. Thank you. So, yeah. So tell me, where can people learn more about you then? Where can they reach out? Where they, can they find the books? Well, my books are sold on Amazon. And they are um, sold on Barnes & Noble and a bunch of other, you know, retail sites. My website is rootswale.com. Very easy. One word, lowercase, no apostrophes, rootswale.com. And if you want to go directly to the blog, it will be rootswale.com slash blog. But the blog is one of the choices, you know, on the site. Uh, it, it gives information about me, my background, about both books. And um, I have to really update it. It lists the talks I've given. Um, there's There are links to the um, recordings of podcasts that I've been on and to, you know, magazine articles that interviewed me. So there's links to some of that stuff, but it's, it's a little out of date. I have to update it. But um, that that website has a lot. It has a great whale on the opening page. <laughs> so it's ruthswhale.com. And you can, anyone can contact me through the website. If someone subscribes to the website, like if you give your name, that means you go on my email list. So whenever a new post goes up in the blog, you get a notification with the link. So if someone subscribes, that just means that I'll, you'll, you'll hear from me when there's a new post. And uh, any, I, I welcome any comments, questions, criticisms, anything. I welcome any contact with people. Wonderful. Is there a final message you'd like to leave with our listeners today? Well, I hope people will be interested to read my books and to let me know what they think of it. Uh, think of them. I am very curious about that. And I hope it won't just be two Gs. It'll be people from other backgrounds, from other walks of life who just are interested in the story and i really do want to hear from everybody that's my message 
and be kind to each other. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Ruth, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, I wish you Thank all the best. Thank you for having me. Well done you. I mean, this listen, this, uh, I wish you all the best and, and a lot more to come, no doubt. Thank you. Thank you. Thank it's you. been great. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.